Hello, greetings. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for giving us the gift of your time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in Scripture. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We are Disciples Making Disciples, part of a non-denominational church in Los Angeles, California. We'd love to be of encouragement and service to you. If you have any questions or comments, please let us know where you found us. We also would love for you to subscribe to us, and if we can be of any further service, you may reach out and find us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Let us consider what Peter wrote to the Christians of Asia Minor in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead bless others because you were called to inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from uttering deceit. And he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the Lord's face is against those who do evil. For who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But, in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. But do not be terrified of them or be shaken. But set a Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience, so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than for doing evil. Now so far, Peter, in his exhortation to these Christians of Asia Minor, began in chapter 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3 with two core messages. He first has his core message of encouraging them in their faith through the trials they're going through, uh, keeping in mind the, the big picture, that they are being uh, saved for this uh, great uh, re revelation of the faith of the final day, that they have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, waiting for them in heaven, the great power of this salvation that the prophets wanted to that set forth and the angels wanted to look into. Then he explains from that that they need to be holy in their conduct, they need to love one another, they need to hold fast to the imperishable word of God and be sustained by it. He identifies Christians as the Israel of God. He appropriates all kinds of terms being used for Israel according to the flesh and applies them to Christians as God's people to show how God has welcomed them into his covenant. Then, from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning around verse 11, through 1 Peter 3, in verse 7, 8, 9-ish, we kind of see the, the kind of the hinge of the whole thing here. He is using this framework that he started in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the idea of, of, of the Christians as in a kind of exile. Just like Israel was in Babylonian exile and received exhortations to a particular end, so now these Christians are in a type of exile. As being in exile, they need to uh, maintain pure and honorable conduct among the Gentiles. They are to live as free people, but not using their freedom as a pretext for evil. They are to be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he applied this message to Christian slaves, to Christian wives, to Christian husbands, uh, in terms of how they can um, demonstrate a 
Christ-like sacrificial attitude in suffering and in serving in ways that are consistent with that witness. And as we reach uh, verses 8 and, and following here, we, we are in this transition moment um, where he's concluding what he has been saying and he is framing and talking about the real core issue that he wants to address with the Christians of Asia Minor. And this conversation will take him all the way to the end of chapter 4. And so we can see how this hinge is working here. That he says, finally, uh, the idea there of uh, the completion here, that uh, this is the wrapping it up, that Christians are to be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. And so they are to maintain this idea of harmonious, being having unity of mind, which is something that Paul encourages in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, and Philippians 2, 1 and 2, that they are to be affectionate, or be sympathetic. They are to feel in the bowels for one another, uh, as we can also see in Philippians 2, 1 and 2. They are to uh, be compassionate, to have brotherly love toward each other. This is something that he's already talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and we've discussed there. Also in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he will return to that same theme. They are to have this tender heart and a humble mind. The tenderheartedness is what we also kind of see in compassionate, and we can see that working also in Ephesians 4.32, and the disposition toward one another, uh, to be soft toward one another, not hardened toward one another, and that humble mind, that humility uh, of great importance. Whereas all the other characteristics here, the Greeks and the Romans would have found acceptable, would have found virtuous, would have found beneficial, they would have had no use for humility, which they deemed as weakness. And yet, maintaining a humble mind is very much part of having the mind of Christ, which we can see very uh, aptly displayed in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But it's not even just that. He then goes and takes the next step, and this is where he is kind of providing this wrap-up where he's explaining, okay, because of what we said from chapter 2 and verse 11 through chapter 3 and verse 7, all of you, in order to make sure that when the Gentiles revile you, that they will have to glorify God on the day of his visitation, when they will put to silence the foolish of ignorant people, when they are living as free, not as a pretext, but as servants of, of God, when they are following the example of Jesus, they're going to have to be these things and to not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but to bless because you were called to inherit a blessing. Very much consistent with Romans 12 and verse 14. In fact, almost everything we see here uh, is consistent with what Paul is saying in Romans 12, 1 through uh, 23, 22, and this is very intentional. Uh, maybe not trying to directly evoke Paul, but just like what Paul is doing when he's writing to these Roman Christians that he has some relationship with and has kind of systematically laid everything out and now is providing the conclusion to it, Peter here is kind of also systematically laying everything out and providing his conclusion here. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see the consistency in this apostolic witness. Um, and this is a theme that, of course, is very challenging, very difficult 
Uh, we'll have reason to talk about it later. But it's getting to the core of the challenge that the Christians of Asia Minor are experiencing. Because uh, he's calling them to bless even when they are in re insulted and evil is done to them. Which again is counterintuitive, countercultural, counter, very much against every impulse in, that we have in our lives. Any time that we have anything happen to us that is that kind of negative, we have this very desire to protect ourselves. And yet here he is saying that in these contexts you must open yourselves up for further issues and challenge, and to continue to bless. And the reason is because they were called to inherit a blessing. And again, throughout the whole thing here, we have this literal shadow of the cross, where in 1 Peter 2, 18-25, Peter has said, we're supposed to be like Jesus. And in 1 Peter 2, 18-25, uh, it evokes Isaiah 53. And in fact, you have quotations from Isaiah 53 interlaced in with the text of 1 Peter 2, 18-25, uh, that idea of the suffering servant. And we will see him again here appealing to Isaiah 53 in verse 14, where he's alluding to um, uh, Isaiah 53, 11 through 12 uh, in, in this portion and section here as well, and quoting from Isaiah 8 and verse 12. So the uh, prophet Isaiah is behind a lot of this, the idea of the suffering servant, and the fact that Christians are to see themselves in the light of the suffering servant. And so the blessing they're inheriting is as Jesus suffered, died and was raised in power, where God had, uh, he humbled himself and God raised him up. Uh, that's, of course, what Paul in Philippians is emphasizing. It's what Jesus himself emphasized consistently. One of those phrases he says over and over again, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is the model of this. Jesus is encouraging his disciples toward this. He You are reviled when you suffer evil. Do not return evil, but instead bless others. When you have been shamed, do not immediately seek to restore your honor by word or by behaviors that would attempt to use this kind of violence, or, uh, either in word or in deed. Instead, provide that blessing. Absorb, suffer the shame. Absorb, suffer the evil and respond with good. Because that is what Jesus has done for you. And again, this is exactly what it means to truly be a Christian. Is to have the mind of Christ to do these things as Christ did them. And so now, uh, he shifts and he quotes from Psalm 34. Uh, verses 10, 12 through 16. But we look at the entire Psalm 34. And one of the things that is very important about all... Uh, quotations, when we look at any kind of New uh, Testament quotation, it's very tempting to just consider the very part that is quoted. And there's a sense in which we need to do that to understand, okay, why is it Peter started where he started and ended where he ended? However, uh, we cannot think that, well, the only thing that Peter, or what any apostolic author has in mind, is just what is quoted. Psalm 34 has a superscription uh, by David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, causing the king to send him away. Uh, the king is actually a, a, a quiche. Uh, Abimelech is kind of a generic term for king anyway. Uh, a quiche king of Gath. Uh, and um, so if 
you think about it, this is saying David wrote this psalm while in an exile because he has fled to the Philistines because he is alienated from God's people, specifically one of God's people, uh, Saul, uh, the king. Uh, he th finds David a threat, trying to kill David. And so now because of this, and, and David, by the way, has throughout been trying to do him good. Uh, David has uh, been defending uh, the cities of Judah from Philistine attack. He has uh, tried to do good for the people he's been around. Uh, he has not actually sought the destruction of Saul's house. Uh, he has only tried to do good for, for, for Saul uh, and for the kingdom. But in Saul's jealousy and envy, all he can do is attribute evil to David. And so now David finds himself in the situation where he's in exile because he has done good. And he uh, praises God. He seeks uh, deliverance and help from, from Yahweh and, and expects to receive it. Um, he says, To fear Yahweh, you chosen people, uh, that those who fear him lack nothing in verse 9. Um, and he, he's teaching about how to fear Yahweh. Um, that, and that's when we start getting into this quote here about what it means to really live this uh, good life to turn away from evil, do what is right, because uh, Yahweh pays attention to the godly and their heart, heart hears their cry for help, but he opposes evildoers. He wipes their memory of them from the earth. He goes on to talk about how the godly cry, Yahweh will hear and save them, that he is near the brokenhearted, delivering the, those who are discouraged. Uh, that yes, the godly face many dangers, but Yahweh saves them from them. The evil self-destruct and those who hate the godly are punished. Uh, so, we again, you can take this absolutely and find all kinds of contradictions with reality and, and plenty of witness of Scripture, but the general theme of this is David is expressing his confidence in God that in this time of exile, in this time of distress, in this time where he is being punished for doing good, that God has seen all of this. God is going to judge. God is going to hold evildoers to account, and he will... Uh, vindicate and, and deliver his people. And so we are to see that in the background when Peter quotes this. Uh, that if you want to love life in good days, uh, you will need to turn away from people, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. And Peter's really holding on to that. As you want to see the blessing of Jesus, this is what you need to do. You need to remember this. That you need to turn away from evil and do good to seek peace pursue it, which is going to mean in humility, you're going to have to absorb and not respond in kind. Um, much speculation attends verse 12 um, with the idea that, okay, if the eyes of the Lord upon the righteous and his ears open to their prayer, what does that mean about unbelievers or the wicked? And do they does God hear their prayers? And this becomes a point of unnecessary speculation. And the reason we say it's unnecessary speculation is because we have no witness to ground uh, any kind of speculation that, well, God does not ever hear the prayers of anybody who is unrighteous or wicked at any given moment because of this. In fact, you could look at First uh, Kings and see that Ahab, king of Israel, who is being condemned by Elijah at the same time when standing up against the Arameans, and the Arameans act like they have something on Yahweh. God listens to Ahab's prayers, uh, heeds what Ahab says, gives Ahab instructions that Ahab follows, and Ahab is able to uh, 
to win some victories against the Arameans. Does he? Now, it's not complete. There are some ways in which Ahab does uh, not exactly follow what God says and suffers consequences for it. But there's this unease with which we should feel with saying that uh, there's this really profound meditation here on how God does or doesn't hear the wicked. Because again, the point of God here, and the point of Peter especially, is not on the wicked at all. It's on the righteous. It's on the suffering of God's people when they do good and they suffer evil for it. So evil is tangential to that because it's, it's, the, it's the catalyst. It's, it's the reason why there's this doubt, this challenge, this questioning. And what Peter's trying to reinforce here is uh, there's a reason why we're doing this. And he anchors the Christian confidence in the blessing in David's same confidence, that God is the one who will vindicate those who follow him and do what he says and will cause the evil to be judged and to be condemned. And so we leave all of that judgment of the evil to God, and we recognize in this. And this is, again, the longest quotation that Peter is going to provide of any passage is here from Psalm 34. And it, it's a very important bridge, because as we've said, we can see how this kind of concludes everything that we've seen, right? Yet there's going to be evil done to you. Uh, you need to maintain your pure and peaceable conduct, because before God, that'll be the basis upon which you get a blessing. It looks like this. But it's also this bridge to what he's going to talk about, because what's the theme here? The theme is, if you suffer even though you're doing good for it, God sees that. God will judge. You are entrusting yourself to God here, and God will uh, reward you. And so that's why, as he continues on, uh, we see that he asked this question. Uh, who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? And, or zealous for what is good? And, you know, it... it it's a question, it's a rhetorical question, right? Uh, that kind of you can compare to when Paul says that against the fruit of the Spirit there is no law. The same kind of thing, right? That you'd think in theory, and in theory, if you're doing good, you will be commended by people for it, and if nothing else, you're not going to be harmed for it. And yet, the Christians are experiencing some kind of distress because they've done good. Just like David, even though he was well-intentioned towards Saul, was receiving all kinds of affliction in response because of Saul's great jealousy and, 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 and his particular uh, challenges and issues. And that's, of course, uh, that's exactly what the Christians are involved with as well. The other way we can understand this, and, and there's probably some truth to it as well, is that it's kind of like in Matthew 10, 28, uh, where Jesus says that, uh, do not fear the one who can uh, kill the body. Uh, instead, fear him who can uh, kill the body and cast body and soul into, into, into Gehenna, into the hell of fire. And, and the theme there, and the idea there is, well, who is really going to harm you if you're devoted to what is good? I.e., if you're doing what is good, God is going to commend you. Who can really harm you? What's the worst that people can do to you? They can hurt you, they can persecute you, they can kill you, but if you are good with God, that is much better than being having favor with men but having God against you, because what can God do to you? So there's probably some of that in here as well. And so that's uh, part of the encouragement here, is remember who you're really serving, 
And that's why he says in 14, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. And that goes back to 1 Peter 2, uh, in verses 18 through 25, when he talks about this with uh, Christian slaves who may suffer for doing good. And said that Jesus is the example for us who, uh, you know, we're supposed to walk in his steps who did this very thing. And so that's why he's able to then conclude, since he's already talked about this theme and brought this theme up, and this is now the main theme, he's able to say, set Christ apart as Lord, or to be sanctified as holy in your hearts, to be uh, always ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that you possess. And very important passage that many people who will take out of, will, will quote out of context, and even out of context, the concept of it's still the same. Uh, to set Christ apart as Lord, to sanctify him as holy, to recognize he is G the Lord and the Christ, and that he is the Holy One of God, that he is uh, the, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the High Priest. All of the language of consecration, in the Old Testament, is is a very physical setting apart, where a priest is consecrated to God's service, meaning he is in a very concrete way set apart. His job is the service of God. There are certain things he cannot do because he is in that role. There are certain responsibilities he has because he is in that role. Uh, there are certain ways he contracts uncleanness in, in ways that, that others may not uh, because of that role. And that is kind of the, the shadow out there of what we see in Jesus, that we are to recognize that Jesus is set apart. He is set apart because he is sinless. He is set apart because he fulfilled God's purposes. He is set apart because he suffered and died and God raised him from the dead. And he is now uh, raised from the dead, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, uh, never more to be subject to death or sin or impurity anymore. So in our hearts, we have to set him apart as, as, as Lord. That's a good way of looking at sanctification. As Lord, and that we are serving him as Lord. And uh, we therefore are to have, make this apology. Uh, apologia in Greek. An apology is a defense. It is not an I'm sorry. Uh, it is a defense, or it is an answer here in the New English translation um, to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you. It's very interesting and important that Peter describes it as a hope, that Christians have a hope, uh, that he doesn't talk about in terms of the faith, although it is the faith. He doesn't talk about it in terms of the gospel, although it is good news or the doctrines, uh, you, or teachings, you can look at it all that. But Peter centers here on the hope. Because what really is supposed to animate all of this is this confidence that no matter what we may endure, that Jesus will be vindicated, and we will be vindicated in Jesus when we obtain the resurrection with him. And that is what's really animating Peter. Because what's happening? When is, the, when is this hope going to be questioned, right? How... You know, when you're suffering, when you're going through all of this, people ask, why are you going through this? Why are you going through this? Why are you suffering this way? Uh, what, what is possibly going on here that would justify this behavior that is complete madness to the world? Because uh, uh, absorbing shame and uh, suffering shame uh, is, is, is normally seen as a mark of weakness. 
And so to do this from a position of strength is going to uh, rattle some people. It's going to really shake people. Uh, and notice also, he's very deliberate about saying to do it with, with gentleness and respect or to do it um, with courtesy and respect. To, again, remember that it, it this is something very important, that we have to do Jesus' work Jesus' way. Uh, we can't expect to do the Lord's work in the devil's way and to really glorify the Lord in this. Uh, and the reason is it helps you keep a good conscience so that you're not the one who's transgressed in these matters so that when they slander your good conduct, they'll be put to shame when they accuse you. That the accusations are made and people are going to think it's completely ridiculous because they see the kind of person that you are. And it's just hard to square all of these accusations of political subversion, of um, of all of this kind of scandalous behavior uh, with the person that people know uh, in, in how you're conducting yourself. Uh, there is a tension within the, the scriptures where there is, and even here in this passage, I mean, this very passage, there is the expectation of antagonism. There is the expectation of being maligned, being slandered, being treated with contempt. And so there is... There's not an expectation that people are going to treat you nicely or treat you well. At the same time, there is an expectation that when you are a person who is a Christian and suffering for doing good and being humble and loving and caring and doing good, that that will still be obvious. And people are going to see that and people are going to recognize that when other people make charges against you, it's not consistent. So there's that tension, and, and a lot of people want to go to one side or the other side of that and make it all about, well, the world's so thoroughly antagonistic, they're going to hate you no matter what. And that almost seems to justify and rationalize kind of becoming a jerk for Jesus, uh, which Peter is very much against here. And on the other hand, there's the idea that, well, all that we need to do is be good people, and people are going to really love Jesus and follow, and follow Jesus. And I do believe that when we embody Jesus, that it will be compelling and attractive to a lot of people. Just, but just like Jesus embodied Jesus and attracted some and repelled many others, that's going to be the same that we're going through as well because it's indicting uh, a lot of core concepts for a lot of people and core uh, behaviors of a lot of people. And so just like it was then, so it is now in this way. And again, we have this whole thing here. Uh, it is better to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. Again, it goes back to 1 Peter chapter 2 um, and, and kind of provides kind of a, a closure uh, from what we saw there in verse uh, 13 and 14. And Peter, as we're going to see in the future, Lord willing, will continue in that same theme and carry it on. So what are we supposed to take away from what Peter has said uh, in these in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, 8 through 17? Well, he's provided a very uh, handy summary of how we're supposed to live here. Uh, again, many passages in the New Testament we could go to and say, hey, uh, you're looking for the basic concept. Here's the basic concept. And here it is, really. You need to have a humble mind, a tender heart. You need to be working for brotherly love, unity of mind, and sympathy for one another. You're not doing evil or reviling even when you're suffering. Instead, you are to bless. And these are things we see in Jesus. This is what made Jesus Jesus. And this is what we need to embody if we're going to be Jesus' disciples. And you can always see where the rubber meets the road, where you get the conflict with culture in this kind of listing, where you've got a lot of people who are really on board with being... Uh, compassionate uh, and being sympathetic, uh, who uh, may be tender-hearted, uh, but may struggle with the humility part in some way, uh, being kind of contemptuous of those who are not that way. 
we're not returning evil for evil uh, or insult for insult or blessing others is is again that's always been counterintuitive and there's been so many people who have tried to uh, baptize the doctrines of demons and uh, the wisdom of demons of the world and try to justify some kind of posture where uh, Christians themselves or Christians support someone who's going to stand up for them and to punch their opponents in the mouth, either uh, literally, concretely, or uh, metaphorically in terms of, of, of language and other such things. And we can see here that for Peter, that's right out. There's no room for that. That's inconsistent with what we're trying to accomplish in Jesus. And we need to be very skeptical and suspicious of any force that's trying to encourage us to embrace or endorse uh, this kind of worldliness uh, in the church. And that's also something that we see with the uh, way people want to make a defense. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where if people want to be very aggressive, domineering, uh, want to be very sarcastic, and they'll find all kinds of like examples in the prophets to justify that kind of posture, but it's still really hard to square with what we're seeing here in First Peter, the idea of doing it with gentleness and respect, uh, because it's just, in, in, you can understand how people lose their patience, but if it's a loss of patience, it's losing the being like Jesus. And we all stumble. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that I have always been great at not returning insult for insult or to make my defense with complete gentleness and respect. Uh, to, there's a big difference from being willing to say, I fall short of that, I need to work on it, and trying to baptize it and say that somehow we can justify or excuse it. And there should be no justification or excuse of this. Meanwhile, uh, in verse, thir verse 13, the idea of being devoted to what could be zealous for good is a great word. Zealous for good really gets us to the attitude we're supposed to have. So much of Christianity is rooted in attitude. Unfortunately, there's so much of a desire for legalism where it's all about, you know, where does it say this explicitly in order to try to kind of justify things uh, that ought not be justified. But we see a lot of times is there's this kind of an animating spirit. And I think that's partially because what Jesus has said and what Paul, Peter, and others have said is that we are to be guided by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit. And if we uh, have a zeal for good, we should have a great desire for good. Uh, going out and helping people and doing things should not be something we do begrudgingly or with difficulty or, or to treat it like it's suffering. It should be something that we have a great desire to do. Peter says, Christian, you do that. Paul said that's what he, he earnestly desired to remember the poor. And so doing that, uh, that, we should not look at righteousness as much of a chore or, or, or even as a trial as much as to have this passion for seeking to uh, bring God's reign and Christ to bear on the world. And part of that is to have that defense. And it is important. We must be able to communicate to others why we have this hope. Why do we believe in God in Christ? Uh, and, and we can talk all we want about various scriptures and the fact that we just believe it. But the, I think what Peter is getting to is a much more profound thing, which is why do we believe? Why do we maintain this, what looks to the world insane hope, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and therefore God will raise us from the dead, that death 
has lost its sting and the sin has lost its power over us. Why can we believe such an insane thing? And to be able to powerfully speak of that, does that mean that we should know the story of Jesus? Absolutely. Does it mean that we need to understand what the witness of Scripture is showing us? Absolutely. Is it great to quote Bible passages? It can be. But we do need to really, as, as, as disciples of Jesus, get back to, why do we bother? What, what are we doing here? If somebody's asking us, why do we bother? What are we doing? Why is this important to us? What is our answer? How are we going to be able to answer for the, the hope that we have that is keeping us going uh, in, in difficult times? Because we're supposed to try to encourage people to share in that hope. And this is another thing about uh, the defense that we end up making it about going out and trying to get people to uh, affirm the same principles of Jesus that we affirm. And sometimes that kind of conversation can be productive, but a lot of times it's done to win arguments. And if we win the argument but lose the soul, what have we done? Uh, and so we have to be very careful about how we do this. To have the good conscience, it means that we need to have done it with gentleness and respect. That people have not just heard the witness of Jesus and what we have said, but they have seen in the embodiment of Jesus in his disposition toward others in how we have spoken about it which is something that is very often missed and neglected. And that's why we also need to make be, be concerned about how we're living. And again, this, that's why 1 Peter 3.15 is still part of this whole context about are we living uh, at, for a pretext for evil or to be slaves of God? Is that how, how we're using our freedom? Because if people are seeing that we are using our freedom to excuse and justify all kinds of unrighteousness, then we, we, our witness is severely compromised. Uh, and that is why it is so important for us to be zealous for good, and, and even we're going to suffer for good, that we need to be able to do that. And we're going to have a lot more to say about this, hope, Lord willing, in future conversations about First Peter, uh, this core concept that, yeah, we, we need to be prepared to suffer for doing good. So this is what Peter has said in First Peter 3 through 17, that we need to be uh, showing love, sympathy, humility, unity, blessing in all circumstances, and if we want to maintain God's favor, that's what we need to do. That we should have nothing to be afraid of if we are zealous for good and do good uh, because we are entrusting ourselves in God and God will be the judge and whatever we suffer on earth, uh, God is able to provide far greater benefits and blessing. And that we are called upon to explain that as a defense for our hope in word and deed. And that is why it's so good for us to be zealous for good and to promote God's purposes in our lives in word and deed. And so how can we be zealous for good even in the face of hostility or persecution? We encourage you to to consider that and reflect upon that. And if you have any questions or comments uh, regarding that and some thoughts about it, we'd love to hear it. At this time, let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for the blessings of life that you've given us. We're thankful for uh, health and the prosperity that we enjoy, for uh, the physical blessings of this creation. We should not take that for granted, but we're especially thankful for the spiritual blessings you've given us in Jesus and the hope that we have in him and the hope of redemption and resurrection and to uh, be your servants, uh, doing your work as you have given us opportunity to do so. We're mindful of all those who are ill. We pray that you would heal them. We pray that you would comfort, strengthen, sustain those who are in grief and distress and in pain, that you would provide for those who are in need, that you would preserve life where it is in danger from uh, violence, from war, from natural disaster. We pray for all people, especially those in authority, that we may be able to live in peace and tranquility that you would humble the, the tyrant, 
And we especially pray, Father, that as we live our lives, that we would bear faithful witness to your Son, that we would seek and be zealous to do good, even if it means that we suffer evil, that we remember always that uh, what you have done for us in, in Christ uh, is greater than what uh, we can suffer in the world. Give us the power, the strength, the boldness, and wisdom to be able to bear this witness, to be able to explain why we maintain this confidence in you and have this hope no matter what we may endure. And give us the strength to be willing to, to love one another, to care for one another, that when we are reviled and when evil uh, we suffer evil, that we're willing to bless and that we do not return insult for insult or evil for evil. And that we uh, faithfully serve Jesus in all these things. We earnestly look forward to his return that we can no longer suffer these things and share in life in you forevermore. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, we're so thankful that you've joined us. If we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VentureToChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.